Welcome to Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast with Elizabeth Crawford, where I dish with trendsetters, tastemakers, and other experts in the food and beverage industry about everything from emerging trends to regulatory pressures to marketing strategies. As most of you know, Vermont's much-debated GMO labeling law technically goes into effect today and will require firms selling food in Vermont to clearly label when products are produced with genetic engineering, partially produced with genetic engineering, or, quote, maybe produced with genetic engineering, unquote. It also blocks manufacturers from advertising genetically engineered foods as a, quote, unquote, natural product. Now, I say technically because the Vermont Attorney General is giving companies a six-month safe harbor period for foods distributed before today's July 1st effective date and offered for sale through December 31st. There's also a bipartisan federal GMO labeling bill moving through Congress now that, if passed, would preempt the Vermont law. So definitely something for us to keep an eye on. Also, as many of you know, labeling GMOs is only one piece of a much larger, both and impassioned debate about genetic engineering that has raged on for years and is still continuing today. Those against genetic engineering claim that GMOs are unnatural, unsafe, and negatively impact the environment. While those in favor of the technology take the opposite stance, arguing GMOs are safe, do not threaten consumers' health, and are a valuable tool that provides environmental benefits. With all the rhetoric for and against genetic engineering, it probably isn't surprising to most listeners that a recent Harris poll of more than 2,000 Americans found 75% of consumers support labeling legislation. But what might surprise listeners is that even after so much public debate about GMOs, civic science found a whopping 47% of almost 2,000 U.S. adults surveyed in May, so they're not familiar with GMOs, and they're undecided on whether they harm human health. This underscores a substantial lack of knowledge at the consumer level about the basics of GMOs. To help us better understand what genetic engineering is, I am joined by Jill Wheeler, who is the head of sustainable productivity in North America for Syngenta, which is a biotech company that conducts genomic research and produces agrochemicals and seeds. Also joining us to talk about what it's like to use genetically engineered seeds on the front lines is Brian Scott, who farms more than 2,000 acres of soybeans, corn, and wheat in Indiana. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Jill, let's start with the basics. Since almost half of Americans are unfamiliar with GMOs, can you tell us exactly what genetic engineering is and how it's done? Thanks, Elizabeth. That is exactly a perfect place to start. The simple answer is that genetic engineering is the intentional modification of the characteristics of an organism by manipulating its genetic material. So the concept is nothing new. Humans have been practicing genetic engineering for thousands of years. But what is new and continues to evolve is the tools that we have available to do it. So if we look at the evolution of those tools, we have always worked to make our crops more resistant to diseases and pests, and sometimes even to make them taste better to us. Now, originally, all we could do was to observe our crops and save the seeds from the ones that we like the best for replanting. But even in doing that, we altered some of our favorites so much that crops such as 
strawberries, wheat, and corn are virtually unrecognizable today from their ancestors. And then there were some crops that we essentially created by messing around with other crops. For example, it's believed that sweet potatoes were created by humans about 8,000 years ago when they decided that they preferred the swollen parts of regular potato roots, so they intentionally bred those plants and only those plants until they created this new and, in my opinion, very yummy thing. And then we move into the 1800s, we get a little bit more sophisticated. Many of us remember learning about Gregor Mendel in high school science. He pioneered hybridization, which is where we intentionally breed two different varieties of plants together to create offspring that includes characteristics of both parents. Modern genetic engineering really got its start in the 1950s when we figured out what DNA was, and then it got an even bigger boost in the 1970s as we developed ways to cut pieces of DNA in certain places and then attach the pieces to the DNA of other organisms. Now these are considered the first genetically modified organisms, and they popped up in the medical, agricultural, and chemical worlds to solve a variety of problems. In fact, GMOs are still key in medicine. Uh, most insulin today is made using genetic engineering. Now most recently, and I think very excitingly, we've added even more tools to our genetic engineering toolbox. And essentially what they let us do is to be faster and more precise than we were in the past. So we have marker-assisted selection, which lets us dramatically speed up the traditional plant breeding process, and that lets us better predict what a particular genetic combination will reduce. And then we combine that with data analytics and predictive models, and that tells us which potential combinations are most worth our time and effort. And probably the newest one is called CRISPR-Cas9, and this is whereas before we were combining and crossing, or in the case of GMOs, adding genetic material, with CRISPR we can now edit it out. And it's literally like reviewing the traits of a particular plant and then snipping out the ones you don't want. You know, many opponents of genetic engineering argue that inserting genes or snipping them out um, results in unnatural frankenfood, so a combination of animals and plants. Can you talk a bit about this concern and how genetic engineering techniques compare to those of breeding, which many consumers say that they're much more comfortable with? Well, I think the best way to address those concerns is to take a step back from what humans are doing today and look at what nature has been doing for millennia. And now we know that nature has created mutations on its own over the years. And in fact, we still do a lot of work in that area with mutations, and it remains unregulated, and that happens whether it's through radiation or chemicals. But nature has also been inserting DNA from one species into another for thousands of years. Uh, in the 1980s, one of our Syngenta scientists, World Food Prize laureate Dr. Mary Del Chilton, was at Washington University researching a plant disease called crown gall. And what she and her team learned was that this disease occurred because a soil bacteria known as Agrobacterium tumefaciens had figured out how to transfer its own DNA into a host plant. And it was doing this independently outside of the lab with no human intervention. So Dr. Chilton and her team were able to harness this naturally occurring transfer agent, and it ended up becoming the gold standard for the gene transfer method of genetic engineering, which is used in GMOs. So I would argue that agrobacterium is proof that nature was the first one that had the bright idea of putting genes from one plant into another. But where I think we've trumped nature is in precision and control. 
Um, we talk about frankenfoods, and remember Dr. Frankenstein had a fair amount of trial and error in that work. We're actually doing a lot better than that, and our modern genetic engineering methods have far more precision and far more predictable results than chemical or radiation-induced mutations or even natural plant crossbreeding. Yet, as with so many things, of course, the more you don't know, the more frightening it can feel. Yeah, so I was talking with some consumers who had concerns about GMOs and walking them through some of the techniques that are used in breeding, so these chemicals and x-rays and gamma radiation sort of induce these mutations as you were talking about, and their gut reaction was, maybe we shouldn't have breeding either. What's at stake if we don't have genetic engineering and breeding? What happens to our food supply? Uh, in many different things. Uh, I think that we have to look at issues, anything from scarcity to even food waste and quality of nutrition. Genetic engineering plays in so many different areas. Uh, the most common, of course, is how do we produce more food? And it is everything from improving our hybrids and varieties to helping them better withstand challenges, whether it is from pests or environmental changes, climate, drought, heat stress, all of those things. So we would immediately sacrifice serious gains in terms of our total yield potential. But then we also have so many areas where we are able to improve the relation of those crops to human life, such as in nutrition. So there is a lot at stake. And it's also different things at stake for our more developed markets as opposed to our developing markets. And I think it's very important to remember that uh, in our developed markets, such as the United States, we're pretty spoiled in a way that we don't have to worry about food scarcity as much. We can actually focus on things like taste and appearance. But in the many other parts of the world, they are still at the point where it really is all about can we just get more food, period. And in many areas, they have not even yet ad adopted hybrid technology which in some instances can create an over 50% boost in productivity right off the bat. And I want to pull on what you said there about how we use genetic engineered crops in the U.S. versus sort of the other parts of the world. And Brian, I think maybe you're a good person to pull in here. Can you provide a little bit of context for us with the use of GE crops versus those um, developed through breeding or other techniques? I mean, how prevalent is the use of GMO crops in the U.S.? And what are the major... GE crops that you're seeing and using? Sure. So we grow corn, soybeans, popcorn, and wheat. Uh, not everything we grow is GMO. There's, there's no GMO popcorn. There's no, there's no GMO wheat. And actually, half of the field corn we grow uh, happens to be non-GMO as well. So a good, good portion of our crop is, is not GMO and you know, relies on a lot of that traditional breeding. And, of course, Traditional breeding goes into uh, the GMOs as well. Uh, you still have all that work in the greenhouse and the field to uh, get a robust crop for the, the right soils in the right area for guys like myself. Um, and then when you get a good variety, you want to get a trait into your good varieties. So, so it's, it's a combination of those things. Uh, in, in the U.S., uh, for what I grow, I mean, the vast majority of the corn and soybeans are GM. Um, maybe Jill's got numbers. I don't have them off the top of my head. I think it's, it's probably around 90% for both, I think. Yeah, that's correct. You mentioned that you grow GMO, but you also grow conventional side-by-side. -side. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I hear a lot of concerns from people about GMO tainting other um, conventional crops or organic crops. What's it like to grow them next to each other? Right. 
to grow them next to each other, at least where I am, is not a huge deal. I don't I don't have any organic neighbors where you know where we have to talk across the fence about maybe staggering planting dates and whatnot, things like that, or having a a buffer zone. Um, popcorn actually can work the other way. It has a great deal more pollen than field corn does, like sometimes up to ten times the amount. So if we were to be next to a seed corn production field, which which we're not, um, that could play there, and we'd have to you know work with whoever's growing the seed corn. Uh, we do grow seed. Um, most of the soybeans we grow are seed beans, and soybeans are pretty easy to be honest. They're growing for seed production um, because they breed true to themselves, unlike corn, so you don't have to have male rows and female rows and be cutting tassels off and all that good stuff. And they can be right next to another field. Um, the only thing is we might take off the outside row because they test for the, the variety when we deliver it, so we just want to make sure it's absolutely clean. got to clean out all our planting and harvest and trucking equipment when we're doing that. Same goes for popcorn. That's a quality thing, not really a pollen cross-contamination thing, but it's growing both. It's it's not, not a huge deal. Uh, that half of the corn we grow that happens to be non-GMO is, is waxy corn. We deal with some buffer issues there. We have to keep back or sometimes we'll send the outside rows as dent corn. Um, so it sounds like you guys have techniques in place and strategies talking with one another to protect against this quote-unquote contamination risk, and then it's also not unique to GE. Yeah, that's, that's right. I think there, there's quite a few issues out there that people seem to think are only related to GE, but it's it's more of a you know general practice in, in farming than whether or not the crop's Roundup Ready or BT or whatever. Now that we sort of have a better sense of what genetic engineering is versus breeding and sort of how it's used out in the field, I'd like to delve into some of the safety concerns frequently raised about GMOs, talk about the environmental impact after that. One of the big fears that I hear voiced a lot is that the introduction of a new gene or a protein in a food could trigger allergies in people who consume them. Jill, can you talk a little bit about the impact of genetic engineering crops on allergies? Sure. It is very true. Making genetic changes does cause different proteins to be expressed by the plant. In fact, with insect-resistant plants, such as on Brian's farm, that's exactly how those plants fend off the pests. Uh, and it's also true that any protein can be regarded as a potential allergen. I think what many people may not realize is how rigorously all GM crops are assessed for potential allergenetic or toxic properties for humans or animals well before regulatory approval. Uh, any new protein from a GM food has to pass three different tests that scan for potential allergic reactions. So that is part of the reason that ag biotech products are the most stringently tested food products on the market. And we actually know far more about them than any other foods that we eat, including organic, many of which are produced by those mutation processes that we discussed before. Um, we can tell you from the research, we do know there have never been any substantiated cases of GM foods causing allergenic reactions or illness in people, and we believe that is because of the standard of rigor in the R&D process. But I think really the most compelling argument here is that it's about the people that work on these projects. We have a pretty good body of knowledge about allergies. We, we know 90% of food allergic reactions in the U.S. are caused by allergens from just eight different foods. 
So that means that whenever uh, we are working with one of those foods, if that does happen, there's an automatic red flag. In fact, we actually had a biotech project in soybeans that was intentionally stopped because it involved a tree nut protein, which is one of those um, eight potential allergen-causing substances. So there is a high degree of oversight and a lot of conscientious work in that area just to prevent that. And Jill, correct me if I'm wrong, but aren't there some efforts to use GE to ease food allergies? I mean, I was just learning about its impact on peanut allergies. Exactly. Yes, there's now a team at the University of Georgia that's using genetic engineering to work on developing a hypoallergenic peanut. Uh, I was just reading about this too, and I didn't know that it was uh, that much of an issue. We lose about 50 Americans every year from severe allergic reactions to peanuts. So what this team is trying to do is to identify those proteins in the peanut that are most allergenic. Um, From what I've heard, it's unlikely that we can create a completely hypoallergenic peanut, but the hope is that we can snip out the worst offenders from those various proteins that cause problems so that we can at least avoid a fatal reaction. And if that particular process is successful in that food, um, it's very likely that we can move on to some of those other likely candidates for allergies and start addressing it that way. It seems like a lot of consumer concerns that I hear about GMOs are really related to the pesticides and that GMOs are just a stand-in marker. Um, With this in mind, I sort of want to switch gears again and um, talk a bit about the health impact of GMOs on the earth. Brian, maybe you can start us off by walking us through why farmers use pesticides in general and the association between genetic engineering and pesticides. Sure. Uh, Pesticides have been around for quite a long time, Uh, certainly before GM crops came around in the mid-90s, which is about half of my lifetime ago. So I was in high school when that happened, so I've seen both sides of that. Um, farmers have been using herbicides, insecticides, all that for, for decades and, and decades. And now with, with GM, uh, that doesn't mean we're necessarily using more. I wouldn't say it guarantees we're using less. In a lot of cases, we're using less. I know on our farm, um, in part due to BT corn and in part um, due to crop rotation and some of the weather we've had here the last several years, um, BT and the seed treatments that are on our corn seed is the only insecticide we've used except for one instance on 30 acres one time since I came back to the farm full-time in 2009. So once our corn crop is planted, it it will not very likely see a a sprayer or a crop duster out there spraying any insecticide. We we used to put insecticide on with the planter when we put the seed in the ground, and we, we haven't done that for about four years now. So... On that end, you know, it's, it's reduced my cost, uh, reduced fuel usage. It, it just helps a lot on that end. It, it's not a guarantee. And the other thing GMO does is I like to say it puts, puts another tool in our toolbox. So say you add a Roundup Ready glyphosate-resistant gene. So I, I can go out there and spray glyphosate on my crops. Um, we do that on our soybeans a couple times a year. That half of our corn I talked about that is GM, uh, it's all Roundup ready. We almost never spray Roundup on our corn because we like to rotate to a different mode of action, uh, different types of herbicides to treat weeds when we go to a corn year from a bean year 
in a field the previous year. That's just a good method to prevent resistance. And so the next question people ask, well, why do you buy the Roundup Ready? Um, two reasons. A lot of times we found the hybrids we like the best that work best for us on our farm, and they may just happen to be Roundup Ready. It's also you have that tool in your toolbox if you have something later on in the season. Um, we get a grass problem or something because it's rained a lot. Uh, glyphosate is a great grass killer, and corn is a grass too. If it's not Roundup Ready, you'll you'll kill it. So it's it's there if we want it. That doesn't mean we have to use it. Sort of building on that, you mentioned that you're spraying less, um, which is a common, um, I think, misconception among people. But what are some of the other environmental benefits and downsides to growing genetically engineered crops that you haven't touched on yet? Yeah, some of the benefits are, uh, I would tell you there's an increase into the entry in people doing minimum till and no-till. Um, we're certainly doing that. We're doing more no-till no acres each year. I would like to go uh, 100% no-till, and I, I think we'll get there. Um, but I think I think we'll get there. Um, and, of course, when you go to no-till, that is what it means, no tillage. So tillage is by far the most fuel-consuming action we do on the farm. And the other thing is if you're not doing tillage, along with not burning that fuel, uh, you're also not disturbing the soil, you're keeping some crop residue on top of the ground there, um, takes the impact from heavy rains, reduces erosion, lets that water infiltrate better instead of running off the top, and I think we all know that erosion can be a, a major issue, and the last few years we've gotten into using uh, cover crops as well, you know, mixed in with our GMOs, so some, some of our fields we have something green growing in between cash crops that we don't even actually harvest. We have it there for the, the benefit of the, the soil to uh, keep some living roots there to feed all those organisms in the soil in the months between cash cropping, and it also helps with the erosion because you've got, you've got a root mass there. So there's, there's lots and lots of benefits to, uh, to GMOs on the, the environmental side of things. Um, the only big downside in my mind that I see is you've got to make sure at the farm level everybody's using the technology properly. Uh, if you track down, go back, um, let's say like corn rootworm being resistant to BT traits, um, maybe Joe can talk on this too, um, a lot of that goes back to some relatively smaller areas of the country where they, they plant corn one year after the other and they're, they're in a continuous corn production program, but they're they're not changing up that BP trait or using any other modes of action. So eliminated the effectiveness of their tool. So that's one problem that I think needs to be addressed. Jill, did you have anything that you wanted to add there um, in terms of maybe environmental benefits or the downsides? Uh, you know, the only thing I would add is we talk a lot these days about climate change, uh, specifically climate change mitigation as well as adaptation. Adaptation meaning how can we help farmers uh, continue to thrive and produce enough food even as we're seeing big changes in the weather around us. Um, genetic engineering is, is really allowing us to produce more food on less land, and that is not as much in North America, but certainly around the world, directly addressing deforestation challenges, which are a significant issue in climate change. So I think people need to remember that GMOs are allowing us to produce food, fuel, and fiber on a lot less land. In fact, the estimate is we would need 
an additional amount of land equal to all of the farmland in Iowa and Missouri to have the same amount of food if we didn't have GMOs. And as uh, Brian was talking about all of the fuel that he saves with his reduced tillage, our best estimate is that kind of minimum soil disturbance saves about 1.1 tons of CO2 per hectare per year globally. So there's some significant benefits there from a climate change standpoint. And the other area where genetic engineering is really helping is just in that adaptation area. How can we help farmers around the world continue to survive now that we have a very different climate? So we now have corn plants that can produce the same yields with less water, or they can get about 15 to 17% more yield under drought conditions than they would have in the past. And we also have rice that can better survive flooding, and this has already helped us avert some food shortages after major floods in Southeast Asia. And then finally, um, I'd just like to point out again that uh, maybe not as much in the United States, but globally, there's a number of hunger and nutrition issues that we are already addressing with uh, genetic engineering and that we can do better with in the future. So one of the examples is the rice that's enriched with vitamin A to prevent blindness. Now that technology has been available, it has been out there for many years, although it's not yet commercialized. Uh, unfortunately, it's for reasons that go beyond science, but it does show what genetic engineering can do to address some of these other larger problems. Yeah, so you sort of started to talk about the environmental stewardship aspect of that. Are there other factors or ways that genetic engineering will play into this in the future? Um, I think that somewhat remains to be seen, and a lot of it, as I mentioned, remains to be seen in terms of acceptance. There is so very much that we can do, and a lot will depend on what we are allowed to do. Um, again, looking at climate change and where different products, different crops are going to be grown in the future, that could very substantially change depending on weather patterns. And it is generic engineering that is probably in the best position to help us adapt to those things moving forward. Okay, well, obviously, we've barely scratched the surface on the issue. It's sort of at the heart of the debate of genetic engineering. Um, for more information, listeners can check out GMOanswers.com, which taps experts across fields to answer consumer questions about genetic engineering. I want to thank Jill and Brian for joining me today to provide some basic information about genetic engineering and to talk about their experiences with GMOs. And I also want to thank everyone for listening. Please tune in again next week to find out more about other emerging trends, pressing issues, and regulatory concerns that are facing the food and beverage categories. Until next time, I'm Elizabeth Crawford, signing off for Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast.